We've been doing something here for the last few weeks, for those of you who might be here for the first time. Is anyone here for the first time, by the way? Oh, okay, everybody is a pro. That's good. All right, so we've been going through a series of just handling the main concepts of The Fifth Way, which is my book that uh, just came out in a new and smaller edition, which Frank always thinks is good if it's smaller and shorter. So uh, uh, it's, it's out there in the, on the table in the back, but we've just been kind of going through the main concepts. And I wanted to continue that uh, this morning, but also uh, at uh, Joe... You know, crazy uh, electric guitar Joe over here. At his prodding, um, he wanted to see if I could continue to work on the parables as well. So it just so happens that each concept that we've been going through in the book has a parable that I think illustrates what I'm talking about. So we're going to see if we can double track and sort of do both. We'll kind of hit the, uh, the principle in the book or the concept in the book, but illustrate it with Jesus' parables because they are so rich and they give us so much meaning. Um, the book is divided into four sections, and uh, there is a, an introductory chapter called The Gospel According to Lou, and we went through that. But The Gospel According to Lou is a chapter that's dedicated to confronting our stereotypes about Jesus, what we think Jesus represents, who we think Jesus is. From a Western and modern point of view, we have these preconceptions and these notions that keep us from being able to really see the true Eastern Jesus, as he was as a Hebrew, speaking an Eastern language to Eastern people. And that is the Jesus that is really going to speak to us deeply, without contradiction, and always pointing to the Father's love. And my experience with this Jesus has just been life-transforming for me personally. And this is the Jesus that we're trying here at The Effect to convey, to introduce, so you can see him for the first time. Then the first section is called The Gate, and it's subtitled The Way to the Way. This is where we have to confront our own worldview, what we believe about reality that precludes any other reality out there, especially a reality that Jesus is trying to bring to us from this, the best word for it is alien place. You know, this good news is so alien to us because we just don't see it in our lives, we don't see it in our culture. And so the process of even going through the self questioning and introspection that it takes to be able to open yourself up to the possibility of a different reality, you know, a different worldview out there is this way to the way. And if you remember Jesus' analogy of the gate and the way, that the gate is narrow, it's constricted, that leads to the way, which is also narrow and constricted, that leads to life. And so we have to negotiate the gate before we can get to the way. And this is exactly what I think Jesus is talking about. You've got to confront your own belief system, what it is you think is true. And you have to be willing to sell all that, give it to the poor, in order to really follow Jesus along this way. The second section is called The Way, and it's, the call, it's subtitled The Shape of the Journey. What is really this journey? We all have concepts of what we think the journey is about, and we have to challenge those so we can really see what Jesus' journey is about. And what we're starting today is the first chapter in that second section of the way, where we're going to be taking a look at what is the shape of Jesus' way? Now, we've talked about it here before that we all have ideas about the shape of the way. And they usually center along intellectual lines, legal lines, emotional lines, and liturgical lines. 
So the different ways that we can approach God really are our notion of the shape of the way to the Father, or as Jesus would say, to the kingdom of the Father. And once again, we have to confront these things because if we think the way has a particularly intellectual shape, we would say in our culture a theological shape, then that's going to become the sum of our reality. And if Jesus is coming to us with a different shape of the journey, a different way of walking the way, then it's going to be impossible until we're ready to unlearn, to empty, in order to be filled, in order to learn. The first two ways are the ones that are most prevalent. The intellectual way, the theological way, and the legal way. Following rules, that there are morals, there are ethics, there is law that we must follow. And if you take a look at Jesus' ministry, if you really analyze the red letters and the way that he's teaching, you find out that much of what he was doing was trying to tear down the preconceptions of those two ways, the legal way and the intellectual way. Now, the legal way is right in your face. Every confrontation he had with the scribes and the Pharisees was basically over law because the scribes and the Pharisees were the lawyers of their culture. They were the legal doctors. They had created the law over a period of 300 years, and they were masters of the law. They had added thousands of rules that people had to follow in order to be acceptable in their culture, in their community, and to their God. And Jesus is just systematically tearing that down. You see it in all these confrontations. You see it in every Sabbath controversy. He's trying to get the people to understand. First of all, you don't need a middleman. Take out the middleman. No one needs to stand between you and God. No one should stand between you and your God. His harshest words were reserved for those who stood between the people and their God. You won't enter kingdom, he says, and, and you won't lift a finger for anyone else and help them to enter as well. And so he's trying to get people to understand it's not about following rules. You can't just follow rules into kingdom. Something has to change. The truth is, is that we as a people never progress beyond just the carrot and the stick. Right? Reward and punishment. Because that's what rule following, that's what the legal system is all about. It's about the fear of punishment. That's what keeps us in line. That's what keeps follow, us following the rules, is that we're afraid of the punishment. Now, in this case, ultimately, that punishment is hell of the next life. We're afraid of that punishment. We're afraid of bad things happening to us in this life if we're not following God's precepts. But like little children who are afraid of a spanking, if we don't progress beyond that, then we're never going to understand what kingdom is really about. And if we merely progress from the stick to the carrot which is now the hope of gain, the hope of acquisition, the hope of reward. Now it's enlightened self-interest. So I guess we've moved along from fear of punishment to enlightened self-interest. But Jesus is saying, if that's all you have in mind, then you have your reward in full. There's not going to be anything else. We need to move beyond the stick, beyond the carrot, and move all the way to something that is not even truly comprehensible in the legal mind. Jesus at Matthew 5.20 says, unless you exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom. And that probably really flipped the people out because how could you be better at their game than they were, right? But this is exactly Jesus' point. 
We need to completely code shift. We need to make this quantum leap. We need to get out of the legal hamster wheel completely and over into a place where we understand true relationship. Jesus didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill its intent. He told us that. Fulfilling the intent of the law is fulfilling the relationship that the law is designed to foster, to protect, to cherish. And so when we are connected in relationship, guess what? Our lives look like law, but we're no longer bound to obedience. We don't feel the restrictions or the oppression of the law. We feel the freedom. This is what Jesus is trying to get us to understand. And the truth is, until we do this, until we exceed the carrot and the stick, we cannot enter kingdom. It's not possible. Well, what Jesus does on the legal side, he's also doing on the intellectual side. And if you think about it the way Jesus taught, and I know we've said this before, if you ask Jesus a direct question, you don't get a direct answer. You get another question. You get a story. You get a parable. You get something that is breaking off the line of questioning, stopping it right in its tracks. Because Jesus knows just by the intellectual line that you are trying to follow, you're already digging in the wrong spot. There is no treasure underneath that particular spot. Dig all you want. Work yourself to the bone. You're not going to find kingdom along this line. So cut it off. Stop. Let me confuse you, he's basically saying. Let me confound you. Let me present you with a riddle that has no logical explanation. There's no way for you to figure this out. And once you stop trying, that is the place you want to be. That's the sweet spot. Because now you can move in a completely different direction. What Jesus is trying to say is that until we stop obsessing over clarity, over intellectual understanding, and really think about what we're doing, until we stop obsessing over the control that we crave and think we need to have a risk-free decision, a risk-free life, until we let all that go, we can't enter kingdom either. Because where Jesus is trying to take us is to the place of what he called Talia, the child, the bondservant. The child doesn't understand a thing. The child has no idea what his or her parents are about or the decisions they have to make or what their lives are like. The child simply trusts that food will be on the table and there'll be a warm bed to be tucked into at night and they never give it a second thought. They know nothing. They understand nothing. They trust everything. You see where Jesus is trying to get us? We hold obsessively to the intellectual. We hold obsessively to the control that we think understanding will give us. And we lose everything that it means to be a child of God. We cannot trust if we're holding on obsessively to trying to understand. Now we understand, we as a people, understand this intellectual approach as theology. So just as Jesus said, unless you surpass the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees legally, unless you become like a child and surpass your intellectual bent, you're also not going to be able to see kingdom. It's just not possible. So we've got to move beyond theology. We've got to move beyond intellect. And what I wanted to do right now is just read a couple of paragraphs from this chapter to see if we can start to lock in, to hone in to what this is really all about. 
So, everything has a name. God gave Adam the authority to name all the animals in the garden. And we've been naming everything since. And since in ancient Hebrew thinking, the authority to name something, like a child or an animal, was a symbol of the dominion held over that something. You get that? You name something, it shows your dominion over it. You get to name your child. You have dominion over your child. Adam names all the animals in the garden. That was Hebrew code for man had dominion over all the animals on the face of the earth. Like a child or an animal was a symbol of the dominion held over that something. There's a psychological lesson here for us all. To this day, Jews won't speak the name of God as a sign of respect and to avoid showing any possible dominion over the mighty one. To name him would be blasphemy to the Jews. But the rest of us continue to name everything in sight, especially in the area of theology. Now get this next paragraph. In terms of theology, there's dispensationalism and covenant theology. There's systematic theology and biblical theology. There's soteriology and eschatology. Theism and deism and even finite godism. Pantheism, panentheism, polytheism, henotheism, atheism, Gnosticism and agnosticism. Now how about hermeneutics? Hypostatic union, Arianism, semi-Arianism, modalism, docetism, Nestorianism, and Pelagianism. Now, you can be a premillennialist, a postmillennialist, or an amillennialist. You can be a pre-, post-, or mid-tribulation rapturist, a futurist, a preterist, a historicist, an idealist. You can practice Calvinism, Armenianism, Wesleyanism, Lutheranism, or Catholicism. You could be Eastern Orthodox, Evangelical, Pietist, Quaker, Shaker, LDS, JW, Foursquare, denominational, non-denominational, congregational, or just plain Baptist. Or Anabaptist. Did I really almost get through that? Now you could look all these up and see what they mean, but that's not really the point. We have spent so much time and energy trying to describe, categorize, subdivide, and explain every aspect of God and his nature to exert control and dominion over God and our relationship with him, if only by simply attempting to comprehend him, that we don't even know what each other is talking about anymore, let alone actually agreeing on anything. And with all those theological terms flying, we have forgotten that while God gave us permission to name the animals of the garden, he never gave us permission to name him. How could he? How could we? God told Moses from the burning bush that his name was Haye Asher Haye. That is, I am that I am. Just pure self-existence. And Asher doesn't just mean that. It's one of those all-purpose prepositions. I can be, I am that I am. I am who I am. I am which I am. Anything that you basically want. It's talking about pure existence. How else could he explain? How else could he describe this I am? How can we really get any closer than that? How do we describe raw, ultimate existence, that which simply is any more clearly? How do we, using finite tools such as language and the laws of physics, describe what is by definition infinite? Our limited languages and concepts and equations melt all over the dashboard before we get anywhere near temperatures and velocities that reach the neighborhood of infinity. Here's our problem. 
There was one really ancient cosmological model that imagined that the Earth was a flat disk resting on top of the back of an enormous turtle. Ever seen that one before? You see the big turtle with the, the world resting on its back. Problem is, what's under the turtle? Well, there's another turtle. What's under that turtle? And the answer is basically it's turtles all the way down. Were you as a kid ever, uh, did you ever take two mirrors and put them face to face and look in there and watch that image just repeat into darkness? You know, that's kind of the image you get of these turtles all the way down. You know, and here's the thing. We always want another turtle because that gives us a sense of security. That gives us a sense of non-risk. So we want another turtle and another turtle. But we know that at some point you're going to run out of turtles, that there's no more turtles. And what are you going to do with the last turtle? What is the last turtle standing on? See? There's something in us, and I know what that is. That thing is the fear that we have of not having a last turtle. We know at some point we're running out, but we fight that. And so we want another turtle and another turtle. This is the process of theology, is trying to find the next turtle and the turtle after that. We want to prove God's existence. We want to prove these things theologically because that gives us the ultimate turtle to stand on. Problem is, God resists this process. How in the world can God be explained? How in the world can we, with finite minds and language, have any way of fully describing something that by definition stands outside the laws of physics and language and logic that we're trying to use to describe this being. It doesn't work. God resists being named in any way, categorized. And the thing is, as soon as you name something, you've stepped away from it. You've objectified it. You are no longer directly experiencing it. You're experiencing your idea, your concept about that thing and not the thing itself. Here's something you can put on your refrigerator. We can't name God and know him at the same time. You can't do it. We're always trying to prove God's existence, presence logically, and one of the most famous attempts was Thomas Aquinas back in the 13th century in the 1200s, if you're familiar with Aquinas. And he came up with his own five ways, his five ways of approaching and proving God's existence. And the first three are basically cosmological arguments. There's two basic arguments for God. Cosmological, and that means that if you run the clock backward, there had to be a first cause. Something had to put the universe, everything we know in existence, because nothing comes from nothing, right? Right? So Aquinas says, well, there is the unmoved mover. If everything that moves had to had a push at some point, something pushed the thing if it's in motion. But you run the clock back, what gave the first push? There had to be something that moved within itself that didn't need something outside itself to move. You see how this, this line of thinking works? And, and then there was a contingency uh, idea where every being that exists could also not exist, and so it's contingent. Something brought it into existence. There had to be a first thing that was non-contingent, that had existence within itself to make everything else. And so these are the lines along which Aquinas, Aristotle, and many others were trying to prove God's existence. The other basic argument, argument is the teleological argument. And that comes from a Greek word, telos, which just means purpose or end. And so the idea is, this is the watchmaker argument. 
You come across a watch laying on the beach, and since it has design and it has purpose and it has function, therefore it must have had an intelligent designer to design it. As we look at the universe and everything around us and biological systems that have design and have purpose, the argument is there had to be a designer in order to do that. These are the best arguments that we can come up with. And they may sound pretty good to you, but they're not without controversy. And they don't really convince anybody who doesn't want to be convinced because they come up with other arguments that refute those arguments. I think we finally have to get to the point where we've got to be honest. Why is faith so prized in Scripture? Remember Hebrews 11.6? Shirley's always telling me this one. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Why is that true? Because faith is the only way we can approach God. We can't do it intellectually. We can't do it theologically. That might get us a certain distance along the way, but at some point we run out of turtles and we have to just make the leap. And faith is what making the leap is made of. That's what it's all about. And so faith is where we need to go. Faith is what this is all about, moving beyond theology. And so once experienced, once we've experienced God's presence, once we've taken this leap of faith, then theology becomes what it really is. It's the, our best attempt to express the inexpressible. We've had an inexpressible experience. We do our best to put it into words. But remember this. If something is provable, then it's not faith after all that got us there. There is no way, in my estimation, and you may disagree, to prove God's existence logically to another person. I can prove it to myself, and I have, but that's experiential. Because of this whole system we're talking about, faith is the key. It's our faith. It's our journey. We have to take it. Nobody can transfer their faith to us. They can transfer their theology. They can transfer their concepts about God, but they can't transfer their faith. They can't transfer the blessed assurance that we know, that we know, that we know that God exists because we've met him and experienced him and felt him in our lives. And this is an important distinction because as long as we're going along that intellectual line and trying to name God, we don't experience God. We step away from him. Now, at the same time, this is where it gets confusing, the Bible is constantly telling us to know God, right? Know God, know God. The book of Ezekiel alone, Ezekiel says in one form or another the need to know God over 70 times in his one book. It's a huge priority. We need to know God. Jesus talks about knowing God too. Look at the next in your bulletins. You can take a look at Matthew 7. 21-23, 21-23. This is a famous passage. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. 
So this knowing God is huge to Ezekiel, huge to Jesus, huge to everyone who writes scripture. So what does it mean to know God? A couple more paragraphs here. To know in Hebrew is expressed by the word yada. In Aramaic, I'm sorry, that would be yada in, Arama- in Hebrew. In Aramaic, the same word is yada. Both words come from the same ancient root meaning, hand. Yada and yada mean hand. And since Semitic words were formed out of the meaning of their roots, understanding root meanings provides the cultural context for the word. The idea here is that to know something is not to think it, but to handle it. To have such long-standing experience and familiarity that you can feel its shape in your hands. The hammer and saw in the hands of the journeyman carpenter have worn calluses around their shape through years of constant use. The carpenter can feel the weight of the tool in his hands, even when they're empty, can feel the swing or stroke that addresses the wood, just as a musician can feel the instrument, the strings under her fingers. A lover can feel the face of his beloved and his hands ache to hold her familiar form when she is not present. Knowing God has nothing to do with mental concept and everything to do with constant use, with the easy familiarity of long relationship. Like the way well-worn jeans wrap around your hips or the way couples long married begin to look like each other and finish each other's sentences, it's about intimacy that can only be found through the experience of being intimate And if that isn't enough to get the concept of cross, to know, quote-unquote, was also a Hebrew euphemism for sexual intercourse, for making love. When Adam knew Eve, when a husband took his wife into his tent and knew her, there was ultimate intimacy between them, ultimate knowing. This is the kind of knowing Ezekiel is talking about. It's the kind of knowing Yeshua is talking about when he tells us there will be those who say, Lord, Lord, and expect to enter the kingdom, but will not because they and God don't know each other. Not because their theology is wrong, but because they've never taken God into their tents and worn the shape of his form into the palms of their hands, never experienced the sensation of having their very muscles remember the feel of God in their embrace. This kind of knowing has nothing to do with terms and concepts. It has nothing to do with theology at all. It is purely and simply intimate, ongoing relationship with God as reflected in our relationships with each other. The two are inseparably linked. Knowing theology is not knowing God. Living together, hanging our toothbrushes side by side, that's the kind of knowing Ezekiel would recognize. And Jesus too. When Jesus says, I never knew you in that passage we just read, The word he uses is yada. I never knew you. What he's saying is, I was never intimate with you. And really what he's saying is, we were never intimate. God is always intimate. God is intimacy. God is pure unity and connection. But we were never intimate with God. So therefore, we never had that intimate relationship And remember what we were talking about in terms of those Hebrew idioms where they idiomatically show consequences as purpose. Here again, God is not doing the throwing out of the lawless, those who practice lawlessness. In fact, the first time I looked up that word lawless, 
lawlessness. I was shocked because the first entry was a suckling infant, a baby. And the next entry was a colt. And the next entry was lawlessness or iniquity or wickedness. Three different forms of the same word. Aula, Ula, and Ila. All tied together by their root meanings. Meaning suckling infant and a colt. It's the same word that Luke uses in the birth narrative. Remember when Mary and Elizabeth come together and the baby jumps in Elizabeth's womb? That, that word there is Ula. And we have to understand what is the connection between those three. God sees the workers of lawlessness. God sees the workers of iniquity as immature, as unripe, as not able to perform to their design specifications, not able to live the mature life of the adult. And so what's really going on here is that they, God is not throwing them out of kingdom. They're unable to even see kingdom to even know that kingdom is there because they don't have the intimate relationship. They're not ready for intimacy yet. This is the sense of what's going on. And remember, as we think about this passage being about final judgment and admission into heaven or hell or whatever, on that day doesn't mean a day of judgment sometime in the future. It's this day. On that day, whatever day that is, that you say, Lord, Lord, this scenario can take place if we've never had the intimacy because it's not about God granting us admission to kingdom. The kingdom is here. It's now. It's within us. But we'll never know that. We'll never experience that. We'll never see that in our lives until we have gotten to the place where we are capable of intimacy. This is the sense that Jesus is trying to get. Knowing is not intellectual clarity. It's not understanding It's intimacy and the trust that comes from that intimacy. It's moving beyond theology, moving beyond the intellect, beyond obsessive need for control into pure trust. And so there's a parable that I think really helps us to get a handle on what Jesus is talking about here. And that parable starts at Matthew 20, verse 1. And you can read along with me here. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. So right now, there's a simile, right? What we were talking about last week. The kingdom of heaven is like. It's like what? It's like this whole scenario. The landowner who goes out and everything that happens. So what is Jesus really saying? He's saying, if you experienced this scenario, if you can experience this scenario right now in this story, even if you didn't do it in real life, then it's like the experience of kingdom. He's trying to line up the experiences. It is so hard to intellectually get across kingdom. It's probably impossible to intellectually get across kingdom, even if we just map it out, have a perfect definition of it. But to get to the experience, we have to experience something that's like that. And that's what Jesus is drawing us to. That's why the parables are so important. The kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. When he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius for the day, he sent them into his vineyard. 
And he went out again about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to those he said, You also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right I will give you. And so they went. Again he went out about the sixth and the ninth hour and did the same thing. And about the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing around. And he said to them, Why have you been standing here idle all day long? And they said to him, Because no one hired us. So he said to him, You go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last group to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each one received a denarius. And when those hired first came, they thought that they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And when they received it, they grumbled at the landowner, saying, These last men have worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden and the scorching heat of the day. But he answered and he said to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go. But I wish, if I wish to give to this last man the same as to you, but I wish to give the last man the same as to you, is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Or is your eye envious because I am generous? And so the last shall be first and the first last. Next to explain this a little bit in context that the people would have understood. When you're harvesting grapes, as soon as they become ripe, you've got to get them off, especially if you're making wine. They've got to come off right away, and they've got to get into the process. And so there was urgency here. The landowner knew he had to get a certain amount of work done. The second thing you need to understand is how the clock works. The clock in first century Judea started at 6 in the morning for the daytime and ended at 6 at night. That was generally sunrise and sunset. And then you counted one hour all the way up to 12, to sunset. And so when he goes out early in the day, that means he's going out at daybreak at 6 o'clock in the morning. The third hour would be 9 o'clock, you know, and so on and so forth. The ninth hour, sixth hour would be noon, and then the ninth hour would be 3 o'clock. The eleventh hour would be 5 o'clock. Now these kind of move back and forth, you know. It's amazing how the ancient clock could have a resolution of just an hour we resolve all the way down to the minutes and the seconds and our schedules are all based on that. Imagine not having anything less than an hour. I'll be there about the sixth hour. <laughs> and it could be plus or minus basically two hours if you went either side of that thing. Uh, a whole different way of living life. And so the people that came, the laborers that came at the 11th hour, it was only one hour before sunset. And so they only worked that much. So here's the thing. The parable makes no moral sense, does it? It makes no ethical sense. It doesn't make any business sense. It doesn't make any theological sense. It certainly doesn't make any intellectual sense. What is Jesus trying to do here? What's he trying to get us to understand? It seems so unfair. In the same way that the reception of the prodigal son was unfair to the elder brother. Very same theme here. The elder brother is the one who stayed behind and stayed for years working at his father's uh, estate, was loyal. And when the wayward one comes back and he gets the party, he's incensed. He's angry. It's the same idea here. Same theme. Now, there are lots of different impressions and different interpretations of this particular parable. I want to take a look at a few of them because it's not that any one is wrong or another right, but they sort of layer up and they give us a fullness of what Jesus is talking about. Generally speaking, this is viewed as the payment of, being heaven, and that this is about those who are converting to the faith. And so the call of the owner to come to the vineyard is the call of a, 
a person to convert and come to the faith. And the denarius they receive at the end is their admission into heaven because they have converted and come to the faith. And so this idea here of deathbed conversions comes into play. Is it really fair if a guy is a real rat all his life and then on his deathbed he converts and says, Jesus, come into my life and he gets to go to heaven? And I worked all my life long following the rules and tithing and going to church and doing all those distasteful things. And I get the same thing as he does. He gets the same thing as me. Is that really fair? And then it just kind of extrapolates onto people just coming to their faith at different times in their life and the reward is all the same. Yeah, it is, isn't it? Get over it. <laughs> it's the way it sort of works. All right? So, but that's one way of looking at it. Another way of looking at it is that this is the Jews versus the church, that the Jews were the ones who came early in the day. They were the first ones to the table, right? They had the deal with God. But now the Gentiles, the Greeks come in, and they're going to get the same reward as the Jews, and the Jews aren't going to like it, right? So is it about that? Is it Jews and Gentiles? Is it about conversions? Another interpretation says, no, it's really all about the disciples, It's about the disciples coming to a place where they no longer have a quote-unquote mercenary spirit. In other words, they've moved beyond just that place of enlightened self-interest. We're looking for the reward of heaven and gauging everything based on that. Do you know there's even an interpretation that sees that this is about social justice? That it is Jesus calling for a minimum wage. (laughs) I love that one. Yeah, minimum wage. Everybody gets paid the same, right? It's about social justice. It's about evening the scale. If you take a look at every one of those interpretations that I've talked about, all the focus is on the laborers, right? It's on the laborers. What if the focus is really on the landowner instead of the laborers? How does that change things? Because I really think this, the main focus of this parable is about the landowner, the one who's representing the Father, representing God. So this makes it all about grace, makes it all about perfect love, and nothing to do with our performance. Notice that all the laborers, no matter how they performed, they got the same reward. They got the same gift. The father to the elder brother says, Son, please come into the party, because everything I have is yours. Everything I have is yours. See, this denarius represents everything a family would need for a day's subsistence. That's what the denarius was. It represented one poor family's subsistence level. That's why you always had to pay in, in Hebrew culture. You paid them at the end of the day, at sunset, so that they could live another day. You didn't delay. It was part of their law. You had to pay the laborer his hire at the end of the day because that represented what they could live on for 24 more hours. Think about the Lord's Prayer. Give us the bread of our need this day is that first petitionary line in the Lord's Prayer. It's all about this day, what we need for this day. What does God give us this day? He gives us everything. What part of everything don't we understand? This is a problem. Those who came early in the day get everything. How much more than everything can you get? What is it that we're fighting about? We want to try to lower someone else's portion so we feel head and shoulders above them, we feel better about ourselves. Lowering their portion isn't give us any more than everything that we already have. God is 
everything, all the time, never withholding, always pouring out. We can't get any less than everything as soon as we get anything. As soon as we open ourselves up and see God as he is, everything that he has is ours. And that's, I think, what Jesus is trying to get us to start to experience the radical, outrageous nature of the Father's love, the Father's grace. That it can't be anything other than this because it's always everything. The early workers can't be paid more than everything and the late workers can't be paid less because God is everything. But there's one more detail I want to point out to you that I think takes us home to where we started in terms of moving beyond theology. Did you notice that the first workers had a deal with God? They negotiated and they struck a deal to work the day for a denarius. They had a deal. Nobody else had a deal. They were just going to work for whatever was right. In other words, they were trusting the owner to be fair with them because they hadn't struck a deal. Do you see where this starts to change the attitude with which both workers are going to work? If we think we've got a deal, if we think we've got God under contract, then we have to perform what we do and then God is obligated to do his part. We're under contract. The first workers came in with an entitlement attitude. They came in knowing that they were going to get paid this certain wage. They came in with an attitude of control, an intellectual understanding that when it was confounded just threw them all to pieces. The others came in, especially those with only an hour to go, as Talia, as the children, as those who simply trusted whatever was going to happen was going to be okay with them and they had no idea what that was going to be. They just showed up. They were ready. They were available and they showed up. So what Jesus is trying to get us to understand is let go of trying to understand all of this stuff. Show up like kids, not understanding what's going on, but abandoning yourself to the process, abandoning yourself to God's presence, and see what's going on here. Notice that the last are paid first. And I say paid in quotation marks here. Because God isn't really paying us and paying these workers. The last are first because they are the first ones to be able to see kingdom through the eyes of the child, through that trust, through that intimacy. And the ones who were first are going to be the last ones because they have all that unlearning to do. They have to let go of everything that they've invested all their lives and what they think they know and the deal they think they've got with God and the resentment that's going to come when they see other people getting in before them. And the only reason they're not in is because they can't see kingdom for what it really is. God isn't blocking anybody. He's not throwing anybody out. It's up to us. Either you see God's presence and can live in God's presence right here and right now and make this moment your kingdom moment, or you can't. God's not doing it. He's always here. He's always on, and he's always giving us everything that there is to have. And if we can start to see this, if we can move beyond our intellect, beyond our need for control, if we can move beyond theology, 
then we can begin to see the shape of this way to Father that Jesus said is the only way to Father. And we'll have a heck of a lot of fun along the way. Let's pray. Father, once again, thank you, Lord. Thank you for everything that you give us that we don't even see that you're giving us. Your gifts are so far flung and so abundant and so absolute that it's hard for us to see them as such, hard for us to see the good news as such. Help us to become more aware. Help us to loosen our grip on the things that we hold on to, that we think are our means of control, the things that we can use to create this imagined risk-free environment. The true risk-free environment is simply entrusting you, Father, and that's what we want to do. We just want to let go and trust and start to enjoy the ride. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Again, as we start this new year, help us to become more and more aware. This is the shape of our way. We want to move beyond any self-imposed limitations, Father, and just drape ourselves around your neck. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand.